be in Matthew 23 if you want to read along, or it'll be on the screen, and, uh, or if you have a Bible, Matthew 23 is where we're going to talk today. Um, if you're here a lot, if you're here for the first time, uh, welcome, so glad you're here. If you're here a lot, you know um, God has given me a kind of a special ministry um, to uh, people. Um, there are some people who uh, just like um, love to be offended. And uh, they, they will, like, if they're Beaver fans, they watch the national championship just to cheer for whoever the Ducks are playing. They don't care who it is, right? Or if, they, if they're Green Bay fans, they're cheering for wh- whoever beat Green Bay because that happens every year and they just don't quite get there. Right? And they, um, or if you're super liberal, you watch Fox News just to hate on it, right? Or if you're a super conservative, you watch that other c- channel with the guys who are in love with Obama. But anyways... <laughs> Uh, some people uh, love to be offended. They love to do that moment where they go, <gasps> like, uh, in church, right? They love church for that reason. Uh, they especially love older church buildings. This church is a bit offensive to them just in the fact that we have like a Reggie Bush poster in the back and stuff. And, and just, you know, they, uh, we don't get a lot of those. But, and, and what I should do uh, is apologize for that probably um, if, I, if I didn't think that this was a special gift that God is using me to give those people, right? And uh, uh, I don't do that flippantly. I don't offend flippantly. Uh, I have offended people from things that I've said off the cuff that I wish I didn't say. That has happened. But there are often times when I'm teaching the Scripture and I teach the Scripture and people say, and I go, well, I'm not going to back down from that one because this is what I believe the Bible teaches. In Matthew 23, Jesus and me are like this. Uh, In Matthew 22... Uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Jesus is teaching because people are asking him questions. And the people asking him questions are actually trying to get him to say what would be blasphemy. uh, And in their culture, that would be punishable by death. And so they're asking Jesus kind of trick questions. And he's answering them in a way that um, is kind of shocking to them because they didn't anticipate Jesus actually being smart. Um, and, uh, well, they didn't anticipate him being God, I guess. And, uh, um, so they get to the end of, um, chapter 22. This is how chapter 22 ends. It's not on the screen. It says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. And it's kind of a funny moment because they're asking Jesus these trick questions so that he'll blaspheme, blaspheme, so that they can accuse him, so that they can put him to death because, He's rolled into town and all the crowd wants to follow his way of following God, not follow the established way of following God, which is good for the economy, or for particularly their economy, I guess. And so Jesus, um, though, he is not one of those guys who's going to go, oh good, now I'm not getting arrested. He says, oh, you're looking for a reason to arrest me. Here's chapter 23. And Jesus says, and in our culture we're going to miss some of the metaphors, But Jesus, um, at this point, there's the disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the disciples are probably going, I told you we should have stopped for lunch. This is what happens when he gets hungry. Does anyone have a Snickers bar, you know? And uh, there's, Jesus goes off. And in our culture, we might miss some of the metaphors and things like that that Jesus is going to use in this passage. Um, 
but we're going to kind of talk through these. There's uh, an introduction, and then seven woes, and then kind of a conclusion. And the woes are the way that people would speak in their culture when they're condemning someone else. They would say, woe to you, right? Like we would say, woe to you, because you're an idiot, right? And uh, that, instead of just saying, you're an idiot, we would say, woe to you, you're an idiot, right? And I know we don't say that. That's a bad thing to say, but Jesus would. So here we go. Let me read the introduction. We'll read it together. Then we're going to go through each of the woes. I'm not going to talk about them each individually. We could go really like legalistic with this if we wanted to, but I'd rather, I want to talk about what happens in this moment uh, for Jesus when he does all of these things. So this is how it begins. So Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so he turns away from the scribes and the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of their day. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I'll explain that. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbis, uh, rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what's great. The Pharisees and scribes are standing right there. And Jesus is saying, here's these guys. Now, listen to what they say, because they're teaching you how to follow God. But do not do what they do, because they're showing you the opposite of how to follow God. And then he goes off and talks about how they create this heavy burden. The Pharisees had hundreds of extra-biblical laws, and the Pharisees, kind of their thing was to help people interpret the Old Testament in the day and age in which they lived. And so they would add all these extra rules. Uh, So they would say, you can't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath, and so they would say, here's how many steps that is for us in this day. And and so then instead of just following the spirit of the law, you've got so many rules in the law that you know you're not going to sin. And and this is similar, I've talked about this, and I went to a conservative Christian college in the South, and we had, they didn't want people wearing t-shirts that had offensive messages on them, so they actually outlawed any screen print at all. So you had, so they, we didn't do anything offensive. There was no screen print on your shirts at all. If you had a screen print shirt that said, I believe in the Trinity or Jesus is divine, you would get in trouble for that, which was awesome for rebellious kids like me. Uh, so uh, we would wear Christian t-shirts. And I went, I was in classes with other rebellious people because uh, we were down the hill, literally down the hill in the youth ministry department where the people were training to be our bosses and we were down the hill. And look where I am now, huh? Started at the bottom. And, all right, so, <laughs> and I swear screen print all the time. So not that I have issues with that, but the Pharisees would set up these extra laws so that you didn't break those laws. And then so that you didn't break these laws, they would create another law over here and they would just get you further and further away from the possibility of sin. And then Jesus says what they actually like 
is everybody lifting them up. They talks about their phylacteries are, are uh, broad. And if you know what those, if you have been around Orthodox Jewish communities, they will wear, as, during their prayer times especially, uh, small boxes on their foreheads that contain some scripture and a, and a band around their arm that contains some scripture on their hands. Uh, and those were actually literal interpretations of a passage in Deuteronomy that they do their prayers in the morning and their evenings. And they're normally little, but these people are so religious they get great big ones and wear them so that you know how religious they are. It's like if you had a what would Jesus do bracelet, right? Remember that? Or now a lot of us wear those not a fan bracelets from last year. It's like if you got one, but it was like a full arm sleeve, like right here. Do you see this? Yes, I see you're small. What would Jesus do? But I'm very what would Jesus. It's like you got a fish sticker but on your car, but your fish sticker is eating a Darwin fish, right? Like, take that. And it's a, if you have one of those, I mean to offend you today. But there is, um, but there is like, it is this kind of, uh, I've got this little symbol, and, and, but I like having a big, and, and I like when I go out and everyone calls me, oh, rabbi, and I like being sitting, sitting in the nice seats. And this is how Jesus talks about these Pharisees. And he actually says, no one should call you a teacher. That's what rabbi means, is a teacher. He says, no one should call you teacher because we have one teacher. And no one, you shouldn't see anyone as your father because you have one father. And no one's an instructor because Christ is your instructor. And he's not saying that like the career of teacher is unbiblical. He's not saying that at all. Or calling your actual physical father your father is unbiblical. He's talking about in a symbolic way, we have ultimately one teacher of our life, that being Jesus, and someone who would come alongside and say, this is the new teachings of Jesus, or we have new revelation, uh, which is how a lot of new religions or cults start, uh, or, or seeing the Father as who uh, gives me my identity. God gives me my identity, and that's the only person that gives me my identity. So it's not like if, if you want to go ahead, I know people love, there are churches that base themselves on New Testament teaching and literal interpretations, and you would run into trouble with this passage if you were a teacher or you ever instructed anyone on anything, right? Like, can I make a coffee? Yes, but I cannot tell you how, right? Like, it's just not what Jesus is talking about at all. But Jesus pushes against this because he says, the people who exalt themselves will be humbled, and the people who humble themselves will be exalted, which is a natural progression of things. Because when we exalt ourselves, the only place to go is humility. And when we humble ourselves, the only place to go is for others to exalt us, and especially for God to exalt us. Because Jesus says, as he says over and over again, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And there's for God this descent into greatness, not an ascent to the greatest seat, but a descent where if you want to know where Jesus would be at the banquet, he would be in the back helping wash the dishes where we kept trying to stick him in the best seat. He'd be like, I'd like to serve people because this is what I think life is all about. And so Jesus talks about the Pharisees and scribes to his crowd. The crowd is there in the temple listening and the disciples. And then he turns and in that turning is this moment, and like if this is a movie, the music changes, the lighting changes, uh, the, they probably change Jesus' makeup a little bit because he is about to go off. And I'm in a life group, and uh, I like told the life, I've been looking forward to this passage for a long, long time. I know some of you are nice, right? Like you're very kind people, and you like the kind Jesus who hugs people and carries a lamb on his shoulder. I like the Jesus who throws things. 
I like the Jesus who goes off, right? It gives me comfort in my rage problem, but (laughs) I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying I like it. All right. Woe number one. Uh, Let me, I got these written down. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So woe number one is that you're a hypocrite, you scribes and Pharisees, and you actually keep people out of the kingdom of heaven by closing the door in their their face. Number two, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You notice the theme yet? For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, which would be a convert to Judaism. And when he becomes a proselyte, You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You can see Jesus is starting off soft and building up, right? He's like, when you convert people to your religion, they are sons of hell, all right? And the word for hell there would have actually been the word Gehenna, which referred to um, the garbage dump and the refuse dump, like anything that was not, shouldn't be in town went out to that town and it just burned and stunk all the time. And it says, so you're a son of that. And when you convert people to your version of this thing you call a religion, they're a son of that too, twice as much as you. Number three, (laughs) woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, I'm oh, sorry, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. No, there's a theme here. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, uh, by it, swears by it, and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and him who dwells in it. For whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see that they were taking their religion and saying, well, you can promise this, and it's not binding. And, but, so we would say, I swear on my mother's grave, right? People say that in our culture. And they would say, well, if you swear just by the dirt that's on her grave, it's not binding. But if you swear by the actual grave, but makes it like, come on, seriously? Jesus calls these people blind guides. Uh, next. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. (laughs) So you know, like in their culture, a gnat would refer to like the smallest thing they can think of, all right? And a camel was like the biggest land animal in their area. And so they would say, and this would be like part of the process of like making wine or things like that, you would strain it. You would have a really small strainer. And they would be straining it so they would get the small little bugs out of it uh, because they would make it out in the open, squish the grapes and all that kind of stuff. So they'd strain it so it was good. But they missed that camel. The camel. (laughs) You can see like the crowd over here is like, ah! right and and the disciples are kind of worried because they know they're going to have to pay the price for this and you can see the hypocrites i mean the pharisees over here uh and they would be just 
like shocked because you do not speak to the leaders of your community in this way, right? You don't. And if you do, you know that it is going to be the end for that guy because the leaders of the community contain all of the authority and all the power. And so these leaders of the community are tithing on the smallest little like herbs that they have in their garden, but they're not acting with justice or mercy or faithfulness. And Jesus doesn't say you should stop tithing on the smallest mint that you have, the smallest plants in your garden, but he says you can't just do that and forget the things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. You can't just say, oh, I'm good with God because I did this tiny thing if you miss these giant things. This is why there's a problem when you're, I've been in churches where there's people who've been Christians for 50, 60, 70 years, right? And they're really good at it. They follow all the rules, but they're mean. And Jesus would say, I understand you're doing all these things, but don't be a jerk, right? All right. This, I'm not going to say that to any of those mean people because they're mean. Jesus can. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. That's kind of an obvious one. Uh, next, second last. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs. And so you know, they would have tombs that were just like caves, and they would actually whitewash them to warn people, because if you touched a tomb and you were Jewish, then you were ceremonially ceremonially unclean. And so they would actually whitewash them as kind of a warning that this is where there's uh, an unclean area. And he says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Like, I don't think Jesus can get more insulting than this. It's not saying, oh, you're one way with your friends and you're another way at church. He's saying on the outside, you look good. But on the inside, you are completely, and he would, this is like in their culture, to be unclean is the worst thing because you would be unacceptable and unable to lead or be a part of worship in the temple. And especially the week that Jesus is saying this because there are uh, temple activities going on with the big festival of Passover happening. And so he's saying, you people look like you're okay, but inside it is like you are the worst of the worst. And you don't think Jesus can get worse than that, and then he's going to say his last one. And here's why it's his last one. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, which is the, as bad as bad gets in their culture. I know we would say, you're a snake and that's nothing. So you can just change that to the worst cuss word you can think of. Don't think it, that's a sin. Okay. <laughs> Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, 
so that on you may come, on the, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel, which is the beginning, the first death in the New Testament, Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who is be the last, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The people would say, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have done the sins that they did culturally. We can hear that when we think about uh, like sins that we have culturally looking back in, in our side of the planet, right? In the Western culture, we have ways that we have acted towards others that are sinful. And we would like to think, if we lived back then, we would not have been like them. And Jesus is like, you guys, these guys, not only were like them, but you are like them. And this is, and Jesus actually says, I will send you more prophets because you destroy and persecute and kill and beat the people who come to you with God's message. Then Jesus ends with this. So he gives these seven incredible insults. And then he says this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would, sorry, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus insults Jerusalem, you need to know he has a passion for that city because the city is the heart and really representative of the whole country in a way that for people who live outside of America, New York is America, right? If they don't know how far away New York is from here, uh, they think that that is what it is or Paris is France. We think those ways. Jerusalem was representative of all of Israel. And Jesus says, the prophets of God come to you. The people who bring God's message come to you. And you run them off. How much God would have liked to bring you in the way a hen brings in her brood or brings in the chicks. And yet you run away. And so your house will be desolate. And you will not know God until again, someday when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until your heart changes, you cannot receive that which God wants to bring to you. Isn't this like a shocking chapter? Like if you came today and you thought that Jesus was nice, <laughs> please come back next week because he is sometimes. <laughs> After this, he goes and has some lunch. <laughs> but there is this breaking point that seems to happen for Jesus. When they ask him questions, ask him questions, ask him questions, he's like, listen, you're missing the point when you're trying to trap me. If you want to know what I think, just let me tell you. And he goes off. And he says some of the most uh, aggressive things that he says, period, in his life that are recorded. And he aims them at the people who are the leaders of the religious uh, system and political system that they lived under. Like, Jesus is very, very kind, but for people who are trying to be aggressive against Jesus, 
he says, okay, you want to be aggressive against me? Let me give you a reason. Let me show you what I'm really about. Because if you know that, then you will feel entirely justified in killing me at the end of this week. In fact, I'm going to predict that you do that. And then Jesus, like, so in, like, it's not like the people who killed Jesus, and we'll get to this as we approach Easter. It's not like they didn't have a reason under their system. And it's not like Jesus didn't walk into that reason. Because Jesus wasn't going to turn away from his truth. He wasn't going to turn away from his message. And he wasn't going to change what he had to say for his own self-preservation. He was going to that cross, and he knew it. And he was making sure that he was going to that cross. Now, when you read this passage, you could think, this is a warning to religious leaders, right? Like this is, good thing I'm not a religious leader. James should pay attention to this because he's a pastor. And the rest of them uh, were good, right? I am not a whitewashed tomb. I am not a brood of vipers. I'm good. And we can, or we can take this like really, really legalistically and say, therefore, you shouldn't be a teacher, right? Uh, which I talked about being completely false. And the question needs to be, who was Jesus going after and why was Jesus going after these people? And people will interpret this and think Jesus was going after, like, Judaism, going after the Jewish faith. Because the Jewish faith was based on a system of obedience and sacrifice to make up for a, a lack of obedience or a, a failure to obey in every situation. And was Jesus going after that? The problem with that, like, Jesus isn't condemning Judaism as a system. Uh, the problem with that is not only do we end up with a lot of anti-Semitism that comes out historically because of a misinterpretation of this passage, but we actually, Jesus tells them when the Pharisees and scribes preach, do what they say. Like he says, your religious leaders, who I'm about to insult seven times in a row, do what they say, but don't do what they do. It's kind of this, it's a, it's a hard thing for us to grasp because we want to follow religious leaders who say truth and live truth. And Jesus is saying, truth exists independent of the source that it comes from because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And all truth, if it is true, is God's truth, no matter who says it. So if the worst person on earth reads from the scripture and it's true, then you follow what it says, no matter what the worst person on earth does. You follow the scripture, and you follow accurate doctrine and accurate theology on the scripture. You don't do what the person does. And that's a hard distinction. But Jesus isn't saying the Jewish faith is condemned. He isn't condemning all the Jews, right, as a people group. Because, and people will take this and say, well, he's talking about how all the people of Jerusalem kill all the prophets and they're terrible people. He's not condemning them. He's actually approaching this with sadness. Like when Jesus insults, this is what the difference is between Jesus and a person like me. When he is insulting the hypocrites and the Pharisees and the scribes, he's actually sad about it. Like it hurts him that they are like this. He's not saying these things to bring them down. He's saying these things because of the feeling that he has in his own heart and how sad it is that these people are so far from where they could be. He's not 
putting them down so he can be lifted up. That would go against what Jesus teaches in this chapter itself. And Jesus isn't condemning people who are Jewish just as an entire people group because he himself is Jewish and he himself claims that identity and claims that history. And so he's actually saddened for the people in hopes that they can turn to God and be brought into God. He describes God as a hen, which God was probably like, mm, but you know, I don't know that I'd want to be described as a hen if I was the creator of the universe, but whatever. Uh, so when he describes him, he describes him as caring, like a motherly kind of care for his people. And he desires that his people would be close so that he can protect them. But Jesus isn't going after, uh, sorry, I don't think he's going after religious leaders either. Uh, and this might be, you can disagree with me on this if you want. Some people think that he's going after institutionalization or organized religion. People don't like organized religion. I don't think that's what Jesus is going after. I think he's going after organized religion, which values the institution more than the God. Does that make sense? If we are into self-preservation, then I think we go against what Jesus is all about. If we make decisions, like as a church, or uh, the leaders of this church, people who are elders or on the council or on trustee, if we make decisions which are in the interest of our self-preservation at the expense of the love of God being expressed to people, then we're missing what Jesus is trying to do. Which those are hard things to balance, aren't they? But Jesus is saying, this is my path and you should follow my path. And your version of success might not look the same as my version of success. What I think Jesus is going after more than anything is that he goes after an institutionalization that eliminates the spirit. Uh, this, and we would say that an institutionalization that follows the letter of the law at the price of the spirit of the law. And we would go further than that as Christians and say that the Bible teaches that God is spirit. And so in the spirit of the law is where God is. The Bible teaches that the letter of the law actually reveals sin, but the spirit of God actually brings reconciliation from that sin. And so if we just have a ton of rules and we follow those rules in minutia, like we act this way or do this way or dress this way, and they don't necessarily have to be written down rules, right? Like every culture has a rule. You just kind of, we are like this. And if we say we are like this at the expense of people, then we're following the letter of the law and not following the spirit of the law. And I think as soon as we're not following the spirit, we're not following God. And I think this is more than just an institutionalized thing. I think we institutionalize our own personal faith because we want to know where we stand with God. And so we have an identity and we say, I, I, I do these things. I, I tithe on my smallest herbs in my garden. I, I do this, I do this, I do all the things that the, line me up. And when we do those things, this might be offensive. When we do those things, we actually are suffering from pride and then we build ourselves up so that we think that we're bigger than the Spirit moving in us. If you think you're awesome at following Jesus, and yet your spirit 
doesn't feel in your following of Jesus, then I would say the problem isn't like this weird dichotomy. The problem is that your pride has built yourself up to think that you're above that. To think that people who are express it with their spirit are immature and me who's got this system is mature when Jesus actually says plainly in John 4 that those the worshipers the father is looking for are those who worship in spirit and in truth I would say the opposite is true as well those who worship in spirit at the expense of truth are suffering from pride and exalting themselves and the solution to that that Jesus offers is humiliation you really either humble yourself or God does. And that might happen on earth. That will definitely happen at the moment you meet God. Because what we think of ourselves, and if we admit it, we think we're pretty awesome on our good days, maybe not on Mondays, <laughs> but we think that we've maybe got it together we think that maybe we're following Jesus because we've got this and this and this and this. And the danger that Jesus is pushing against is that we've got this checklist, whether, it's, whether we know it out loud or not, kind of in our hearts we have this checklist. And when we follow that checklist and then we miss the greater things like mercy, like faithfulness, like grace, like joy, like justice. Because we're so good at being Christians. The danger isn't for those religious people out there, I don't think. I think the danger is for us. Like, I don't think, like, I think if we could read this passage and think, oh, good thing we're not like them. And as soon as we have an us and them, I think that condemns us because we've recognized that we're better than them. And that recognition in itself reveals that we are the them that we speak of. And so this all of a sudden becomes a wildly personal passage. Not that, oh, I need to make sure that I'm not a brood of vipers or I'm not a whitewashed tomb, but I think we need to actually check ourselves to make sure that we're not creating a separation between who we are and what we do. Or what we do and what we say. Where we confess that God has everything under control, but we're workaholics. We never rest, because if we did, things would fall apart. We confess that God will provide for us, and yet we're always scraping to get a little more. We believe that God will move in impossible situations, yet we're helping him out because he's probably busy with world peace and world hunger and those kinds of things. And so he probably appreciates us doing this work on his behalf. Those things we would never say out loud, but we'd live them. And the danger isn't out there. <laughs> the danger is very, very close to our own hearts. And so our prayer becomes that God would reveal to us who we are. The prayer becomes that Jesus would speak to us in the same way that he spoke to these Pharisees. I've never heard someone say, I heard from God, 
and he said, I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> they say, I heard from God, and he said, I'm awesome, right? But maybe we would actually seek that God would refine us in a way that he speaks to us with what we really actually need to hear. I believe this is the best thing about getting married. There's someone who's going to tell you what you actually need to hear. And marriages that struggle often are because you don't believe the person who, like, knows you. When your spouse says you're a jerk, probably you're a jerk. <laughs> and you're really a jerk if you won't believe them. <laughs> no, I'm not a jerk. You're just a wimp. Eh, that's a jerk thing to say. And maybe we would seek to have that level of intimacy with Jesus, where Jesus is actually able to speak to us in a way that reveals the things in us that actually hinder him working in our lives. And not that Jesus needs to be a big downer in our life, but when we are able to overcome those things through the work of God in our lives, then we're able to experience more intimacy just like in our human relationships, when we work through things where we're a jerk, we experience more intimacy. And with Jesus, if you're a whitewashed tomb or a brood of vipers or a blind guy that strains out gnats and eats camels by mistake, then maybe if Jesus could work on that in you, it wouldn't be that you'd experience being a better Christian. It'd be that you'd experience what it is to have an intimate relationship with a God who loves you. Isn't that what you want? The problem is, the price is humility. The result of that humility is the intimacy that exalts. So I want to pray that way for us today. And then uh, we're going to actually pray, and then um, we're going to do the offering immediately afterwards. Um, but I don't want you to like do that. Well, let's just pray, and then we'll have the ushers come up, and you'll have time to you know, write your check and put all those zeros on the end. We'll give you lots of time for that. But there is, oh my gosh, but uh, this is why we don't normally let me do offering, right? But there is, uh, we're going to sing one song to close as we give, but uh, we're going to pray together and then uh, we'll be finished in just a moment. So, but I'd like to pray uh, in this and in this that God would speak to us um, in an aggressive way because he loves us, all right? So let's pray together. Jesus, our God, we come to you seeking an intimate relationship with you. We come to you seeking that there would be nothing between myself and yourself. The things that are of me that, that I actually would hate if I had the ability to hate them in me. And we pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us with all the kindness of your heart and all the intimacy of your heart, but in a way that is true. And that you would be as aggressive with us as you need to be so that we can experience what it is to have an intimate relationship with you, God. Because we are designed to love you. You have placed eternity in our hearts in a way that shows us that we're designed to live in relationship with you. And we just pray that you would be as aggressive as you need to be with my heart and with our hearts so that we would know you and remove from us 
the very things that we identify with that are us, that keep us from being who we can be in you. We just pray this, not that we would work harder, not that we would be better, not that we'd be smarter or smoother or cooler as Christians, but really that we pray this, that we would know you, Jesus. May we have the kind of intimate relationship with you that you dream of having with us. By your son's name, amen.